And you need to tell your son or daughter, like you, you know, like you are just another employee here. You don't own the business. Yes, it's your family's business. Yes, you should tell me if you think people are doing things unethical, they're stealing, they're they're doing things wrong. Um, you should come and report that to me. But don't act like you are entitled because it's not your business. And so they need to learn the, you know, they need to learn what, what most any other employee would need to learn. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. According to the Family-Owned Business Institute, there are 5.5 million family-owned businesses in the U.S., employing 63% of the workforce, that's about 98 million people, and accounting for 78% of all new job creation. Yet, precious little attention is paid to the differences between family-owned businesses and larger publicly traded companies, especially the small to mid-sized firms that account for the majority of family businesses. Strategy, risk tolerance, management style, and even succession planning are often a reflection of a family owner's style, but can also be volatile as different family members exert their influence on the business. My guest today is Jonathan Goldhill, author of Disruptive Successor, a guide to driving growth in your family business. Jonathan grew up in a family that owned a large business and now helps prepare the next generation leaders of family businesses to lead and scale their firms. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Jonathan. Thanks, Mike, for having me on the show. My company, Imperative, is a family-owned business. Uh, my wife and I started the company 23 years ago, and we're both actively involved on a day-to-day basis today. She handles all the number stuff, and I handle all the talky stuff. And that's just kind of how we've divided labor, and it works pretty much pretty well. But sometimes our family issues do bleed into the business issues, but generally we're a pretty good team. Do you actually see family businesses that are as dysfunctional as like the Roy family on HBO's Succession? Mike, I I don't think I've ever seen a family that was as dysfunctional as the Roy family. As a matter of fact, I thought this would be a great show for me to watch and get some takeaways and learn how to manage really challenging family issues. And after watching one or two episodes, I was so disgusted by the people on that show that I thought, this is not a show that I want to watch. You know, I'm more fam- more familiar. My, my situation with clients is more like Marcus Limonis, the prophet, uh, yeah. who walks into family businesses that need to be, uh, you know, fixed because there's a lot of family dysfunction. And uh, that's more similar to the situations that I walk in. But those people are even more desperate because they need capital to expand usually. Right. I love the prophet. In fact, uh, my youngest son, who's a senior in high school now, um, and even when he was in elementary school, he and I watched every episode of The Prophet as it came out. And we took he and I took a trip to New York together and just visited in the city a lot of the actual companies that were uh, featured on The Prophet. And we even met some of the, the owners and stuff just by walking in and just meeting them. And it was really interesting. And almost, uni- uh, well, universally, everybody we talked to had a really 
great experience with the show and working with Marcus afterwards. So I think that's really good. So we hear about family businesses. Is there, how do you define a family business? I would say uh, two or more family members that are involved in the management, ownership, or leadership of the company. So a lot of family businesses are husband and wife, like your family's business. Um, some of them have uh, the next generation, which is really who I work with, which is uh, younger. Typically, my clients are millennials, but you know they could be any age. So we still see a lot of boomers who own businesses and have, they have their children involved. And fewer businesses make it into the third and fourth generation um, where they really have built a, a legacy and it's a multi-generational business. But I, I would say that, you know, if you look also at public companies, surprisingly enough, there's a large percentage of them that are still family owned and controlled. Walmart, so, right? Walmart's a great example. Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You don't yeah. see it so much in what I call the sexy industries. So tech, um, SaaS subscription, you know, software as a subscription type business models. You don't see too many of the modern businesses that were created in the last 20 years uh, being family businesses when they're um, when they have enormous needs for capital and they're growing. I mean, you know, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, the, the, those are, for the most part, not family businesses. I find most family businesses are in what I call unsexy industries. They're in real estate, the biggest one being real estate, development, real estate management, property management, construction, all the subcontractor trades, plumbers, roofers, landscapers, you know, electricians, um, plumbers, interestingly enough, seem to be like fourth generation type businesses because plumbing, like, can anyone here name a school that you'd go to to learn plumbing? I think this is stuff that you learn through your father who learned through his, through his father. That's what I've seen of every plumbing client I've worked with. And so there are obvious, you know, some of us start businesses to just provide a certain kind of lifestyle for our family or like in my case, where you just can't get along with anybody else and can't work in the court, don't fit in a corporate environment very long. Um, and then there are businesses built to create a legacy. Um, do those kind of, do people tend to be intentional when they're starting these businesses about, I want to create a legacy or I just want to maintain, you know, a decent lifestyle for my family or, or how does, how does that tend to develop? You know, I don't know what the research that would support the answer to that question, but my guess would be that most people who start businesses, um, and we know from Michael Gerber, who wrote The E-Myth, was that most small businesses were developed by default, not by design. You know, it's really the entrepreneur that develops a business by design. So, you know, and again, any one of these former companies I was just mentioning previously, those were companies that were, for the most part, built by design. Uh, I mean, Airbnb being a little bit of an exception, by the way, because that was kind of an accident. Uh, if you know the story behind it, they they needed to basically uh, um, they just started renting out their rooms, which was near the Moscone Center in San Francisco. So people could use it as a crash pad for some consumer or trade shows that were happening at the exposition hall. And then they just started they came upon like this is this could be a business idea. But, you know, I think most family businesses, as are most small businesses, they're started because an entrepreneur either says like you, like, I can't, I'm not going to work for these jerks. I don't want to work for anyone else. I got to work for myself. And so they start 
making some money, you know, a side hustle, maybe it becomes a, a, a full-time thing and they see it right away. Other people just recognize there's an opportunity here, but and they start to exploit it. But I think most of them are saying, this is something that I could make money at and I could have freedom. I think entrepreneurs start businesses because they want freedom. Uh, they want fortune, but they're first thinking probably like, how can I make money and, and control my life? And, uh, and then only do they, once it's successful and they've developed uh, a niche and they've uh, put some maybe systems in place that business starts to become repeatable and they can even start taking more time off. Do they start thinking like, this is something that could be expanded into the next generation, you know, adding employees, you know, adding the next generation. I mean, think about it. The next generation, for the most part, is probably 20 to 30 years younger than uh, than the than yourself or than anyone who started the business. So it's a long time to become um, a success. And 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 by the way, a lot of companies, Starbucks as an example, Apple by examples, um, these were not overnight success stories. Or you could say they were 25 years in the making. So it took that long before they really started to scale. And so you look at any of our businesses, by the time you're into the second decade, you're, you're really starting to figure out how this thing can work and work without you. And that's when having the kids involved or having them help you to make it work without you is really a, a powerful proposition. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm a member of the Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. And so, you know, here in Fort Worth, we've got about 100 members. And so I've got 100 friends who own businesses with, you know, exceeding a million in revenue. And I can tell some folks are just, you know, this is great for me. Uh, I've got, you know, and but I'm, there's no plan for the company to exist when they retire, you know, especially wealth management folks and folks like that. I see a lot of those guys who, you know, when I retire, I'm hanging it up and uh, the entity won't exist. And then I see others. And in fact, I, uh, I think of a, 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 a friend who's got a wealth management company who's brought his son into the business and the son's taking over now. And and there is a that that longer term plan, uh, you know, and as I, I get more and more gray or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we're beginning to have those conversations with our financial planner about okay, what's next? How do we, how do we exit this? Or do I even want to? Because what else am I going to do? I mean, I get to do whatever I pretty much want to now. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so, you know, why would I, uh, you know, forego that, that the return I get on the investment and, and enjoy the challenges. So try every, you know, it seems like every business is, is a little different. Um, but I imagine once you have a, you know, more than just you and your wife or just, you know, a, a spouse and, uh, 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 and own, you know, and their spouses owning owning a company, you get into some unique challenges as other other family members get involved. Um, can can you share any any what kind of challenges a family owned business with more than just one or two members might might face? Sure, I mean, let's take the the first challenge, and this is true of any entrepreneurial company as well, but particularly in husband and wife businesses, which is, do you have a second in command? So that you can, I mean, right now, for most husband-wife businesses, the, the, the spouse is the second in command. But what happens when the two of you want to go away on an extended vacation for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks? 
you know, or you want to travel in an RV or whatever you want to do. You want to, you know, but you're going to disconnect from the office. Do you have someone who is really in charge that can run the business in your absence and will make really good decisions? And these are things that second gen um, family business members really are, uh, they're well positioned to be a really good second in command because they've been around the family business for so many years. They know what their mother or father would do if their mother or father were there making those decisions and they make decisions accordingly. So, you know, but this does require someone who's a mature adult. So, I mean, would I, Mike, if I were you, would I leave my hand, my business in the hands of a 21 year old? Um, not unless he thought like a 31 year old uh, or over. Um, but if he thought like more like a typical 21 year old, that probably not, you know? And so I think having a second in command is his first critical thing that anyone needs to develop if, if they're going to be able to step away. And then, and a second and, and related thing, and possibly a, some of it of a substitution for the second in command is having really good documented systems and processes so that you know when you leave, the recipe is still being cooked the same way in the same proportions. You know, you know, for like by now, by analogy here, if you have a restaurant and you don't have a good recipe and you don't have measured proportions, you could go away for a month and find out that those third pound hamburgers, the the cooks are now making half pound hamburgers for everyone. And you could watch your food costs go up without realizing it. So, you know, a good recipe, set of systems and processes and a good general manager, second in command, whether it's your child or a key employee, super necessary. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour over certification credit. And that's business credit for HRCI certified professionals. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on research credits. Then select episode 32 and enter the keyword family. That's F-A-M-I-L-Y. On March 10th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled, What to Do When an Employee Gets Arrested. We'll discuss the policies you need to have in place before you get that call from an employee's spouse that, well, he won't be in today, and how to fairly evaluate whether an arrest has any relevance to the individual's role in the organization. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after March 10th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Jonathan Goldhill. My, like I said, my oldest is, uh, our youngest is a senior in high school. And so 10 years or nine and a half years ago, I put a 10 year plan in place so that when he goes off to college, it's wheels up. Whatever I have to do for the company, I can do from anywhere in the world. And we, uh, we implemented EOS 
Uh, and so we're, we're operating to that process and we've got documentation and there are precious few things my team needs from me on a daily basis. Right? And so it's, it's taken a lot of work to get to that point. And I've got a great leadership team that surrounds me and, and make sure that everything gets executed. But, um, you know, that's the only way I'd ever have any freedom to, to do all the things that we want to do, you know, once we're empty nesters. Yeah, well, EOS is, has taken uh, the entrepreneur's organization by storm. Yeah. Um, little backstory on that. Uh, EOS's competitor, which is known as Scaling Up. Uh, I know was, I've met Vern several times. Yeah. I'm sure. But for the listeners, like Vern Harnish is the founder of the entrepreneur's organization, EO, and the founder of Rockefeller Habits and Gazelles and Scaling Up. And yet, and that's what's being taught in the curriculum in EO across the globe. I know because I was an EO member myself. Um, and and yet traction, EOS, uh, and the, that methodology is taking EO members by storm because it's simpler. And it really does put some of it an operating system in, into client companies. I use it with my clients. I use traction tools. I'm a big fan of it. Um, it's a really simple uh, operating system that helps uh, puts basic processes in place for how to manage the company. Really important. Yeah, and I've helped uh, nonprofits that I've been a part of implement EOS, mm -hmm. uh, even HR associations. And I recommend uh, all our employees uh, that are coming in read what the heck is EOS so that they've got a, a trainer on it. They don't have to absorb the entire traction book. But, but yep. just uh, uh, it's it's tab A and slot A on how to run your business. And uh, you put takes, it, it's it's genius as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, there's nothing in there I haven't read before and, you know, and Tim Collins or Michael Gerber or anything else. But, uh, you know, they just he puts it, uh, Gino Wickman just puts it in a really easy to follow format. And it's on the list. I've got a list of, uh, I think, six books that anytime somebody tells me that, you know, they're starting a business or they're a young emerging entrepreneur. I give them I give them this list of books and say, hey, here's what I would have read 23 years ago if, if I'd known about them and it would have made my life a lot easier. Yeah, I suspect Michael Gerber's book is one of the other books oh, in that yeah. list. Oh, definitely. Uh, E-Myth e Revisited. And I, I read it before it was revisited. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, for years, uh, uh, I would read that every year over the Christmas holiday. It would be my that would be my schedule. I would remind myself of it uh, every December and just as I get ready for my annual planning for the coming year. But uh, now, now scaling up is in there too, though, because I find a lot of value in, in the four pillars of scaling up. Too. Yeah, it is. It's just too It's too complex and too comprehensive for most small businesses to uh, absorb. If you're doing less than $20 million in revenue or, you know, or you're not planning to be a, a you know, unicorn type company, get to the middle market size company fast. It's a really difficult system for most people, but it's got a bigger tool set than EOS, and that and that's important. And 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 Mike, here's why I wrote my book because my book is kind of a a, a mashup, if you will, of EOS and scaling up, and and another couple of other coaching systems that I put together along the way. But it was written for family businesses because family businesses have some unique. Uh, elements to them that are not addressed by either of these two books. And that is 
there's a there's an overlap of leadership members, management members, family members, and owners. And if you're going to have a clean, healthy, you know, if you're going to have a healthy team, right? So read Lencioni's books, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. But if you're going to have a healthy family, you've got to take it to another level. You've got to be able to take family conversations that don't belong in the leadership team or management team meetings, and you need to take them offline. And some of them might be personal and they belong in, in the room you know, where you guys have dinner together as a family, or maybe not that room, but maybe a other conversation room. But then there's also um, ownership uh, meetings, and those are not addressed by either of these books. And there's oftentimes overlap in the ownership and the family member. It could be 100% overlap, but it could be only 20% because in a multi-generational family business, you might have family members that are owners that are not involved in the business. They don't even live in the same geography. And you need to address uh, and speak to those people in a different forum. It would be inappropriate for them to walk into a leadership team meeting if they're only a, if they're a 20% or 10% owner, but are a silent partner. It would be inappropriate for them to walk in and talk about the issues. So I think that's one distinction that's really important. The other distinction, which I don't think either of the books address all too well is uh, how to have difficult conversations with family members or even key employees that are um, too valuable to lose, too expensive to keep. And you need to be able to have frank conversations because oftentimes in family businesses, you might have to talk to a family member about not being part of the business or about moving them into a role that they don't like or don't want. Or, you know, you might have two siblings that are rivalry, that have a rivalry and are, and are vying for the CEO spot, but only one of them really is, is the best qualified. And if you believe like I do, that only one person should be in the CEO seat. Um, this co-CEO stuff is for the most part, very difficult to manage. Unless, you know, and you do have some such things like you do in your business where someone does the inside, someone does the outside, someone does the, you know, the people thing, someone does the numbers thing. I mean, but there's a certain point in time where there's an overlap of people and numbers or inside and outside. And, you know, who's the ultimate uh, uh, vote getter or, you know, naysayer. So these are the complex things that happen in family businesses that they need to have a process for and need to understand well, where those different meetings should occur and what are the topics of them. And yeah, and with those, those the, the, it sounds like your book is, it's not an either or with the other ones. It's a both and that have having, you know, uh, whether it's traction or scaling up, but also then your book would help with those unique dynamics around uh, having, Having family, whether it's you know somebody you're you're you know married to or uh, related to somehow, or uh, those would all complement. And then we've got to have uh, be on the same page, be willing to have just like five dysfunctions of a team, being able to have those those challenging conversations and being frank and honest and open with each other about business is business, life is life, and we can we can do both of these together. 
And most people who come to me to read my book or, you know, get exposed to my podcast, they come because they realize there are issues in their family business. And, you know, sometimes they could be, uh, dad's really running the business, but I can see more and more he wants me to take over, but we haven't had these kind of conversations. Or dad still has a lot of the equity, 100% of the equity. Um, I really would like to have an, a shot at getting some of the equity and like to have those conversations. And so that's the entree for people who are picking up a copy of my book is to realize that they could be the, a successor and to bring up these types of conversations could make them a bit of a disruptive successor because you know no one wants to be ousted from their, their uh, throne. And so while I bring in the concepts from EOS's traction and scaling up, I bring it up in the context of, so you have a family business, so you wanna scale it, so now let's talk about what, what it's gonna to take to do that. So yeah, let's talk about that that term disruptive successor because um, certainly you know I can see. I, in fact, I've I've got I have a really pretty good friend whose dad built a pretty successful automotive repair business. But uh, and dad convinced my friend to leave his successful career in IT to come take over the family business. But then dad never quite let go of the business. Uh, and so what does that disruptive successor, uh, what does that term mean? And what's the role that they really play in the future of the business? Yeah. So I've taken some flack from older folks uh, who own businesses and say, you know, I don't, nobody wants a disruptive successor in their business. I mean, what are we talking about here? But what I'm trying to sit, make the point of is that the rising generation let's say they're mostly millennials. Um, if they're going to scale a business, two to 10x the current business, they're going to have to bring in some processes, some technology, and some people that are going to disrupt the current organization, the status quo, the methods that they're doing things with. Like technology, everyone can agree, is, is somewhat neutral because it doesn't necessarily replace jobs right away in most businesses. But I mean, AI is coming. Robots are coming. They will replace some labor in, in, uh, in, in certain companies. But the technology can be disruptive. If someone brings in an, an enterprise resource planning and management system, I mean, small businesses don't even know what that is for the most part. They're, you know, many of them are still using uh, grease boards with, uh, you know, erasable uh, markers and that's their their technology they don't have a fully scalable fully mobile uh which is you know great with job costing and you know project management so that can be somewhat disruptive to an older generation but now let's talk about the fact that um, one of the key employees who's been around for 20 30 years in the company and suddenly he's not able to adapt to these new systems and you're trying to coach him as the younger generation leader and he's not really coachable. And you're now faced with like, do I keep him or do I tell mom and dad, like he needs to go or, you know, so this becomes very disruptive 
when you start talking about someone like that. Now let's take it to the next level and say, hey, dad, like we had a nice, you built a nice two and a half million dollar company. You and mom were making, you know, half a million dollars a year. You guys had a great net, but like I can see this being a $30 million company. And what it's going to take is going to be a whole lot of work. And do you trust me to scale this business? And if you do, then like, first of all, I'm going to want an increasingly bigger salary and I'm going to want some say in what that salary and the compensation is. But I want equity. The real value is in the sale of this business or, you know, or whatever it's going to bring me. I don't want to build a, you know, a company that's going to go from two and a half to 30 million and not have a significant ownership stake if I'm the one who's the driving force. And that's disruptive as well. So these are what I'm talking about in disruptive successor. So let's let's talk about that. So let's say family owned business and the first generation is running it and they've decided to bring in family kids or, you know, nephews or whatever, uh, some, some other family into the business. Um, how do you walk that line or do you even worry about it between, you know, with your existing employees that this is nepotism, this is, uh, you know, you're bringing in, uh, this kid to, to tell us what to do. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I'm being put in my place, uh, you know, by somebody who may not even be qualified, uh, you know, at least in the eyes of the employees. How do you deal with those those concerns around nepotism, that kind of stuff? Um, carefully, number one. Transparently, uh, number two. Um, and, you know, meaning what I mean by transparently is like full communication. So you don't put your kid into a leadership position that he or she has not earned their qualifications. They'll be disrespected by the people who's, who's, uh, you know, who he stepped over, like they might've been good for a promotion. Um, so I would say to anyone first, um, tell your kid to go out and get some experience in the outside world, you know, go work for a big company, um, and learn how they do things there. Um, work for a company. Maybe it's in a competitive company. Maybe it's in this in a different industry where you can learn some skills and bring it back to the company. Number one. Um, number two. Um, if you don't do that, and we start you because you're maybe you know you're in high school and you're doing summer jobs, like you're going to have to do the gopher, the menial type jobs, and you're going to have to be willing to learn something and then move into something else. So move them from production and operations to sales, move them from sales to customer service, move them from customer service to a management role. I mean, like move them into different seats to see where their skills really are, are a good match and explain to everyone, look, my son or my daughter, they're learning the business. You know, I'd like you to mentor them. I'd like you to uh, see at, you know, give me some feedback and let's talk about how they did. And, and you need to tell your son or daughter, like you, you know, like you are just another employee here. You don't own the business. Yes. It's your family's business. Yes. You should tell me if you think people are doing things unethical, they're stealing, they're, they're doing things wrong. Um, you should come and report that to me, but don't act 
like you are entitled because it's not your business. And so they need to learn the, you know, they need to learn what, what most any other employee would need to learn. And you also don't compensate that person above and beyond what normal compensation would be for that position. Okay, you want to give them a 5 or 10%, you know, extra on the side. Okay, that's fine. When I say extra on the side, I mean pay them maybe 5 or 10% more than what that position is. But word will get out fast if you pay them significantly higher amount of remuneration for, you know, a job that isn't commensurate with it. So those are some of the things that I talk about in terms of being careful and then also being transparent. Communicate, you know. My son's interested in the business. He's going to be working in this area. You know, once he learns that area, maybe going to move him into this other area. I want you guys uh, to coach him. I want you to teach him. I want you to share with him and understand, you know, he's 21 right now. But in 10 years, he might be the future boss running this business. And so uh, please give him all the help um, that he want, that he needs. And if he's not finding you that helpful, you know, I've told him he should come and talk to me and say, you know, so-and-so is not really being very cooperative. So those are some of the things. I mean, this is just common sense, I think, to me, but it may not be common to other people. Common sense isn't that common. I swear no, that's, that's yeah. yeah. We, we, we wouldn't pay the premium we pay for it if, if everybody had it. Right. So if we don't have the next generation taking over the company, um, and, you know, what, a, you know, we have to, we're going to have to bring out, either bring in from outside or develop it internally, the next generation of leadership. Um, what does that look like for, for the, you know, these privately, you know, these privately held companies, these owners who have invested, this is their baby and they're getting, you know, it's, this is, you know, they want to, you know, make sure their, their legacy is preserved or whatever. Uh, how do, how do you see that working typically? Yeah. So, what we're talking about here is where maybe someone's brought in in a CEO, COO, CFO level position. I mean, that's what I'm assuming you're talking right. about. They're, yeah. they're brought into the C-suite, but they're not part of the family. They may be the only non-family member in that C-suite. And they have to have a pretty sober understanding that they're not the family that maybe in 20 years, if they're, if everyone is working together, that they'll be treated as equal to a family member, and maybe it's 10 years, but that you're basically a hired gun. And so you should look at it as, you know, what can I do to do a great job for this family? And also, what kind of a deal uh, can I negotiate with the owners such that I share in the increase in value in the business? And so maybe that's phantom stock that you get or stock appreciation rights, SARS. Um, there's got to be something I think that a C-suite level person is looking for beyond just the compensation. Um, you know, it's the same type of, you know, same type of situation as a private equity firm um, owning a business and putting in uh, a C-level person as an advisor or as a person on the leadership team. They're looking for, you know, upside. And so negotiate that as near to the beginning of that position as possible. Well, thank you, Jonathan. That's all the time we have today. I appreciate you being on Good Morning HR. Thanks so much. Appreciate it as well, Mike. And thank you for listening. 
You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And please follow and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, keep your chin up.